You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Terry Tempest Williams. Hello, could I please speak with Terry Tempest Williams? This is she. Hello, Terry. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you. I'm so happy to hear your voice. It is a joy to hear your voice. Thank uh, you for calling, Paul. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you that this phone call is motivated by truly falling in love with one of your books. When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. I, I nearly lost my breath when I, when I read it, and I nearly lost my voice. Actually, the whole notion and concept of voice is so precious and so dear to me. It, it is something that is so particular to each one of us. Why, why did you pay so much attention to this notion of voice? It's who we are. Without voice, we are not human. Um, and no matter how that is articulated, whether it's through the human voice, whether it's through touch, whether it's through our eyes, our contact, the smell, to me, voice represents uh, the senses, even sensuality. And, you know, the people I love, I have to hear their voice. Um, in, in one second, I know if my husband, Brooke, is tired or excited or alive. Um, the same with our son, the same with my father, my brothers, the people that I love. We are connected through our voice. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think that I could fall in love with someone whose voice I didn't love. Actually, their, their voices, I'm sure you know them, that, that function really as irritants. I think, you know, for those who have lost um, those who've loved, which is all of us, um, what I miss most is my mother's voice. What I miss most is my brother's voice. And as you say, the voice is the conduit to the soul. I, I, often, I often feel that we, we can't love people if we don't share their adjectives. Um, say more about that, Paul. I think that in some way, um, it's, it's a question of shared language. And shared language, first and foremost, comes through this notion of voice. You know, the, there's a, a, an old definition of infancy, nearly in its etymological sense, which literally means before being able to talk. An infant is someone who can't yet speak. We grow into being human beings once we're able to talk. And what I loved about what you said is that talk and touch connect. I, I believe that. I, I believe that. And I, I always feel I want more voice. I want more adjectives to lift off what you're saying. I want more nouns uh, because it, it's connected to a real world um, that is not abstract, but sensual and alive. 
And, and this particular book, When Women Were Birds, is in a way, a way for you to, to claim again the voice, the lost voice of, of your mother. You know, I wrote this book when I was struggling. Um, I had just received a diagnosis of a cavernous hemangioma in my brain. Um, I didn't know what that meant. It's a tangle of blood vessels um, that can burst or bleed. And one confronts, you know, I confronted my mortality very clearly. And I remember the doctor saying, um, if you were my wife or family member, I would have surgery yesterday. But when I heard what it involved and the risk involved, I made the decision not to have that surgery. And he said, how well do you live with uncertainty? And I remember saying, what else is there? And I was, as I was coming home, I thought, I so wish my mother was alive so I could talk to her about this um, because she passed away in uh, 1987 from ovarian cancer. And then it hit me, almost like a retrieved memory, that my mother did leave me her journals. And I had really stuffed that knowledge all the way down to my toes, and here's why. Um, may I tell you a story? Oh, I, I'm, I'm, as it were, hearing your voice, I'm all ears. You know, my mother was, was dying, and it was a wicked winter night. It was in January, and I was in bed with her rubbing her back, and she was facing the window, and the wind was so wicked, it was almost as though the glass was bowing. And she said to me, Terry, I'm leaving you all my journals, but you have to promise me that you will not look at them until after I'm gone. I gave her my word, and I remember thinking I didn't know she kept journals. My mother was an extremely private person. She proceeded to tell me where they were, and then we went on to talk about other things. A week later, she died. A month later, I thought, now, now I will find out what my mother was really thinking. And finally, I will know in her most private moments what her thoughts were, her real voice. They were exactly where she said they were. Three shelves of journals, beautiful, hand-bound, each one unique. I opened the first one. It was empty. I opened the second one, it was empty. The third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, shelf after shelf after shelf, Paul. All my mother's journals were blank. It was as though she, what can I say, it was a second death. And I just remember I couldn't deal with it. Um, I just grabbed them unceremoniously, put them in the back of my car, um, drove back home, put them on the shelf. And for 20 years, I, I didn't really think about it until I really needed to hear my mother's voice. And I think when women were birds is the exploration of that mystery. Why did my mother leave me her journals, and why were they all blank? And it's, um, as you tell this story, and you tell it so beautifully, and you tell it so gorgeously in When Women Were Birds, it's as if she she left it she left those journals blank but not empty 
I'd never thought of it that way, Paul, but you're right. They were blank, but they weren't empty. They were, in many ways, they were screaming right. to be interrogated. And the uh, uh, screaming, and again, we're we're back to this notion of voice. Uh, they they were calling out, and I wonder how much she knew that that by doing this she would incite and invite and insist. I know that insistence is an important word for you, but that she would insist and say, perhaps, Terry, now, please. Find your voice in these journals. That's so interesting. You know, um, I hadn't thought about finding my own voice. I thought it was more about retrieving hers. But maybe that's what mothers and daughters do. Maybe that's what we do for each other. You know, we're told a story and then we tell our own. We hear the authentic voice of someone we care about, and it inspires our own authentic response. Um, I think by my mother insisting, uh, to use your word, and it does matter to me, that word, insistence, resistance, um, I think I, I had a better sense of, of who I come from. And, you know, I think the easy answer for me was, well, my mother left me all her journals, and she meant for me to fill them. And But that felt too easy. You know, my mother knew that I, I couldn't think without a pencil in my hand. So I think she was very conscious of what she was doing. But as time went on, you know, I came to think of, of her blank journals as as a resistance. You know, we grew up in Mormon culture, and the two things in my generation and my mother's and other women before her, and, and I would say women now, um, we are expected to do two things, keep a journal, a record of our lives, and bear children. And my mother bore four children. Um, and I think her act of resistance um, was in not writing her life story. She lived it. But, you know, I, I, I didn't quite mean that you found your voice as if you hadn't one before. But you found another amplified voice with that blank page she she left for you repeatedly. It isn't a blank page like a blank page that any writer, or for that matter now, a blank screen that any writer finds him or herself in front. There, there was a gesture in, in her leaving those pages blank and saying, you know, there, there is another voice. And that other voice is a voice that comes from me through you and back to you, and back to me. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Um, and I also think we're in a constant process of finding our voice, losing our voice, retrieving our voice. I mean, I look at where we are right now and how easy it is to feel silenced, and yet um, who benefits if we don't speak, and if we don't speak out? loudly, clearly, compassionately, and passionately. Um, and I know growing up in a Mormon culture, you know, we were taught, don't rock the boat, don't make the waves. And I had to speak, and uh, I continue to speak, and it continues to cause problems. But, but you can't not speak. No, 
such a complicated, um, I mean, when you say that, I find myself, you know, not being able to find the words. That's good. Always, it's always the attempt, isn't it? Yes, and and that's good. And you know, um, I I I love a quotation that you have in Leap. As you know, I I I love quotations. I'm I'm a bit of a quotomaniac. This there is this quotation you have of someone I I also truly deeply admire, Anne Carson, where you say, "I am asking you to study the dark." Don't you love that? I love that. Why do you? Well, I love the night sky, for one thing. Um, I don't have a map in my life if, I, if I'm not able to look up and see the Milky Way. Um, we live in the desert in southern Utah, and it's a cacophony of stars. It's, it's a million eyes staring down at you. It is darkness. Sometimes it's so dark in the new moon that I can't find my way to my study where I write. You know, one time I just completely missed it and kept walking in the sage. Um, until I heard the owls call me back. So I, I love the physical darkness. Um, for some reason I feel embraced by it. I also have, like all of us, you know, confronted the darkness in my own life in, in various places around the world. It's, um, the other side of light. I think it's shadow. And I think it's, it's where our growth is nurtured. It's where we find the courage not to look away. You know, what I find haunting in, in your writing is that you're able to bring out that darkness and those shadows, but also, and particularly in this book, to celebrate in a way that I haven't felt in a long time a writer being able to celebrate joy and happiness um and in a way that that is not trite there is this passage in when women were birds that i i adore and i will read back to you and and see what what comes to your mind when when you have heard your own voices in mine where you say once upon a time when women were birds there was a simple understanding that to sing at dawn and to sing at dusk was to heal the world through joy. The birds still remember what we have forgotten, that the world is meant to be celebrated. Thank you for reading that back to me. Your voice is so beautiful, Paul. Um, I remember when I wrote that, and my brother... Um, was really suffering. Uh, he had just come out of rehab um, for his addictions. And, you know, our family had been in a really dark place with him. And the joy of, of when he was able to emerge again with his authentic voice, um, the vitality of the struggle, as Gertrude Stein says. And um, I, for me, joy is rooted in an understanding of sorrow and an understanding of of the dark. That is, for me, what joy is. And it's very different from being happy or content or whatever adjectives, you know, um, or, or verbs or nouns we, we associate with that. But I can't help but um, go back to what preceded that paragraph. May I read it? Of course. 
Please. And it begins here. How shall I live? I want to feel both the beauty and the pain of the age we are living in. I want to survive my life without becoming numb. I want to speak and comprehend words of wounding without having these words become the landscape where I dwell. I want to possess a light touch that can elevate darkness to the realm of stars. This time, sacred time, but the acceleration of consciousness, there are so many ways to change the sentences we have been given. We cannot do it alone. We do it alone. How shall we live? Once upon a time, when women were birds, there was the simple understanding that to sing at dawn and to sing at dusk was to heal the world through joy. The birds still remember what we have forgotten, that the world is meant to be celebrated. Oh, it's, um, thank you. Thank you for that celebration. And I, I find um, those two words so powerful, still remember still remember what we have forgotten and and remember in the sense of the, the strong sense of the word remember which is remember putting the members back together i love that and you know even in our darkest moments even when we are holding those we love in the moment of their dying or comforting a friend who has just lost her son which i have just been part of you know there is still that joy of the remembering. There is still that humor um, that reminds us, but it brings us back into the world of the living because death can consume us, and it does. But, but I truly believe life, life, we are here now together, and in that there is that joy. There is that celebratory gesture, as you say. And perhaps even in my mother's death, um, her empty journals, her blank journals, her voice um, unspoken on the page that reverberated in my heart allowed me to go into those places of questioning where I think all of our voices are found. Well, you know, um, it's truly, truly remarkable, this notion of lost and found, because without without saying saying this too too um too insistently your mother's empty journal journals have awarded us this conversation we're having now um it's 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 just um it's just remarkable what you were able to to conjure up and i'm i'm thinking about this this notion of joy there's a, a french philosopher who you may or may not be f familiar with named clément rosset who wrote about the concept of joy and of joy in in philosophy which is a very unlikely concept to write about as a philosopher you usually write about misery and about darkness and he says you know using the french word of la joie which is joy try saying it i remember him saying try saying la joie without opening your mouth without nearly smiling it's nearly impossible and and you know it it's i remember reading that and and thinking this is so magnificent and he also said late in life he said something like 
I know now, at last I understand, that joy is deeper than sadness. Yes. Yes. Don't you love that? I really do. I really do, and I think, in a way, um, this book of yours really inspires that feeling. And without without any transition, I want to play something for you, and then have you comment on it. You you write about it in the first pages of your book, but I don't want the, anybody who's eavesdropping on us to know what it is before they hear it. So it might take a second or two. Okay. May I just say that I love telephone conversations? So do I. Um, and, and in a way they have become exotic, haven't they? It's, we, we, They're we. So intimate. I mean, they are so intimate. I feel as though you're right here. We're having a cup of tea. Even though we've never met, I know you through your voice in this moment. I, 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 I love them because they, they, they bring, they, they, they precisely, um, diminish this distance. And I don't want to at all, you know, people will say to me, why don't you Skype me? No, I don't want to Skype. I want to, I want to imagine you, Terry. Um, I want to imagine, and I want to imagine that, that darkened sky that will come upon you tonight when you look up. I, I I want to exactly have the embodied, disembodied Terry right here. Yes, it, it's so much about the landscape of the imagination as well as embodiment, you know? I'm going to play this now, um, and it'll take maybe a second or two. The wolf, I reform. Peter by the string quartet. of the hunters by the kettle drums and the bass drum. Thereby, dear children, you will be able to distinguish the sonorities of the several instruments during the performance of this tale. Early one morning, Peter opened the gate and went out into the big green meadow. So there we have it. Paul, I wish you could see the smile on my face. I mean, pure joy, pure memory, pure presence. I love, love, love Peter and the Wolf. And you love, 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 I think, that interpretation by Richard Hale, which I didn't know at all. I grew up um, with Leonard Bernstein narrating it. And I think uh, children, maybe, I don't know if today, but we all had our Peter and the Wolf. But tell me about that smile. Tell me about that memory. Tell me about Peter and the Wolf and you. 
Thank you, first of all, for finding Richard Hale's um, narration. There was something, you know, we were growing up in Salt Lake City, um, you know, Mormon family, and there was something so exotic about his British narration that I infinitely trusted um, as, with his authority, that when he introduced us to the voices of each character, I believed him, that the bird was flute, the duck was oboe, the cat the clarinet, the grandfather the bassoon, um, the wolf is the French horns, and if you just played, the kettle drums is the, the shot. My brother and I would sit cross-legged in front of that um, record player, and it was a record player, um, for hours. And I think it was my mother's ploy to get her own solitude. But in, in maybe perhaps writing her own sanity by putting us in front of of an orchestra that was animated um, with a great story, I think we really came to appreciate the power of, of each person's voice, distinct and unique, unusual, um, true. And add on top of that, that we were a family whose church was not honestly a Mormon church, but the outdoors, nature, um, it rang even more true. And I think there were all those inherent lessons that here's the world. It's not a safe place. That however frightening and bewildering life may be, we can survive our fears and grab literally the wolf's tail, which is one's fear, as Peter did, and make peace with the world. Um, and when I hear that, Overture, um, it is it is pure joy because I know whatever fears lurking in the dark um, will be will be faced and faced um, courageously, joyously, even a boy named Peter. And I, I I wanted to play it for you because it was a way for me to 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 pay homage to your mother. She may have uh, wanted to play this to you to have moments of much needed respite I imagine but in a way playing this brings her back it does I mean she's sitting in the room as is my brother and both of them are gone um, my mother as I said died in 1987 of ovarian cancer my brother Steve um, just 32 years younger than, than me died in 2005 so isn't that interesting? Again, time, space, memory, um, voice, even our dead come back to us. Well, you know, you, 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 you write um, that grief dares us to love once more. I believe that. Uh, grief is love. And we all know the pain of that, the physical ache of that. Um, again, no abstraction. And we wonder if we'll ever be able, uh, you know, there are times you wonder if you'll even be able to go on. Um, but we do go on. And, and I think grief does dare us to love once again. Um, and I'm always aware that a grief shared is a grief endured. And I think that's, again, the community of voices um, that sees our own even when we are rendered mute um, by our sorrow. 
But again, it's I, I'm just thinking that those, you know, when I think about mothers losing their sons or my father losing their son or children losing their mothers, um, it is the scream. It is the scream that gives us back ourselves. Um, I have so many... I mean, we so cry, we cry out. And I, and then we're so fearful of that. And I just, I think it's so crucial that, um, that we don't fear our own voice because it is in our voice that we see our power. Um, we feel our power. We hear our power. And yet there's, there are so many forces in the world that ask us to remain mute. And again, that question, who benefits, especially now. And in anything I've ever spoken, anything I've ever written, it, it was only an attempt. But in that attempt, it took me, it gave me one step closer to, um, to being able to articulate uh, what was in my heart. I mean, for me, I don't know about you, Paul, but words always fail me. Um, they always fall short of, of what I'm feeling inside of me. Um, I, I, fe I feel I, I feel that so so deeply. I feel that so deeply, and uh, you know, often one one doesn't want to express what one feels because one already feels that if one were to do it, one would diminish the the experience and diminish the 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 pleasure. I mean, I remember so clearly. Uh, being an adolescent and loving going to the movies alone. And I loved going to the movies alone because I could leave the movie house without having to say what I felt, you know, or, or as is so often the case, what do you think? What did you think about this movie? Or what did you think for that matter about this, this book? But to be left alone in an un, unword, unword condition seems so important. And you know, there's, there's a wonderful line in, in, in Stendhal's autobiography called The Life of Henri Brulard, um, where he's asked after an opera what he thought of that particular opera. And he says, and I'll say it in French and then translate it, because in French it, it's so resonant. He says, J'eus l'enfance de parler de mon bonheur. I had the childishness or the childlikeness to speak about my happiness. And one, one can one can understand and and yet here i am speaking to you where your labor of love is always a labor attempting to speak your grief to speak your happiness to speak uh, your resistance to speak your insistence to speak about the things that bother you deeply to speak about what it means not to know nature anymore uh, all of that you 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 speak out and you speak to that um even if you and yet the irony i think is that all of that is born out of silence born out of contemplation meditation walking what you were saying about 
the desire, the joy, the need to go, to be in a movie house alone um, so that you can really be in conversation with just thoughts in that solitude or in conversation with what you're seeing on the screen. And I, I think I love the paradox that our voice is born out of solitude, that silence is a conversation um, that is unworded, as you're saying, that one one plays on the other, and the same with shadow and light, and um, the same with sorrow and joy, that that we we have in us the full capacity to hold the full range, that we're not limited by this or that, but this, that, and all of it. My grandmother used to always say, Paul, one plus one equals three. And I remember as children, we'd say, Mina, you're so bad at math. And she said, you know, one day you'll understand what I'm talking about, but it's this third thing. Call it the ineffable, I don't know. But um, but out of our silence, out of stillness, the words come. You know, in, in When Women Were Birds, you have this, you have so many lines, and I'd love you to read to read more at, at some point, but you have this, this one moment where you say, can you be inside and outside at the same time? I think it is where I live. I think it is where most women live. I know this is where writers live, inside to write, outside to glean. I love it. Those two, those two spaces one occupies. Yes. And the irony again, you know, as a writer, I write to create a sense of community. But in order to do that, I'm pulled out of community in my own solitude. Um, so again, as you say, these worlds that, that permeate one another. I'd love you to to perhaps read something from um, the open space of democracy. Thank you. Um, because again, because again, I think you you speak about the heart. You know, I wrote this book in two thousand three, right after George W. Bush. Um, said mission accomplished when he stood on the USS Abraham Lincoln and uh, we were now you know in the midst of, of war with Iraq I remember thinking things couldn't be worse um, environmentally you know on so many levels of, of human rights etc and here we are how many years later um, 15 is that right? something like that and and, and the words still stand. The human heart is the first home of democracy. It is where we embrace our questions. Can we be equitable? Can we be generous? Can we listen with our whole beings, not just our minds, and offer our attention rather than our opinions? And do we have enough resolve in our hearts to act courageously, relentlessly, without giving up ever, trusting our fellow citizens to join with us in our determined pursuit of a living democracy. The heart is the house of empathy, whose door opens when we receive the pain of others. This is where bravery lives, 
where we find our mettle to give and receive, to love and be loved, to stand in the center of uncertainty with strength, not fear, understanding this is all there is. The heart is the path to wisdom because it dares to be vulnerable in the presence of power. Our power lies in our love of our homelands. So I think, you know, in, for me, first and foremost, it is in the heart. It is in our hearts. That if we can speak the language of the heart, then it bypasses rhetoric and, and touches both. And, and we receive each other as the authentic beings that we are, um, without fear but openness. And that to me is the gift of vulnerability. Where nakedness is our shield. You know, when you when you when you speak this way, and and you use the word vulnerability, I I think of some of the most the most profound experiences we have in 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 our life is falling in love, and precisely we we talk about falling, um, mm. we, and so we in in there lies vulnerability. Uh, in their lives, I mean, when we when we speak about the notion of falling, we speak about not having a perfect footing. I love that. You know, in in um, in when women were birds, you have this passage. I'm I'm wondering whether I should read it or you should read it. Um, on page, please you read it. Oh, I'll read it then. It's on on page one sixty four. And it's all about love. Love is where I both find my voice and lose it. I can touch the place in me where I vanished in the hands of a lover, crazy and foolish, driven and mad. I became a wild boar rooting in disturbed soil for truffles. And they were truffles, wonderful and rich, but occasional. In love, the tongue writes wet words on the skin in a shining script where letters disappear like invisible ink, leaving only sensation. The most beautiful words cannot be written, unfortunately. Fortunately. We have to be able to write with our eyes, with wild eyes, with the tears of our eyes, with the frenzy of a gaze, with the skin of our hands. And so, in love I whisper, in love I cry, in love I cry out, in love I breathe, we breathe together, we hold the silence suspended, the days when love was, for me, a matter of art. In love, I also lash out, speak the unspeakable, and attempt murder with my mouth. In these moments, I am beyond rage. I ravage the one before me in an act of revenge. Love is a humiliation. I retaliate. If you cannot be intimate, then I will make you run for your life. I want you. I want you gone. I want you here. I want you very far away. People will think people think that we we prepared this, but you mm-hmm. you you continued you continued reading where I stopped, and I thank you for that. Um, Isn't that what love is, Paul? You know that we continue where one stops, we continue and the other begins, 
And it's that seamlessness when we're really attentive to one another. Wow. Yes, I think you're you're right. I'm 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 somewhat speechless. You have this this line about beauty that I love, where you say, "Beauty is not optional, but a strategy for survival." And that reminded me of a, a, a the opening paragraph of a book by Elaine Scarry called "On Beauty," where she says. What is the felt experience of cognition at the moment it stands in the presence of a beautiful boy or flower or bird? It seems to incite, even to require the act of replication. Wittgenstein says that when the eye sees something beautiful, the hand wants to draw it. I do. <laughs> how how does it speak? How does it speak to you? Well, what I love is that, in spite of everything, you know, beauty holds us in whatever form we seek it or not. You know, for example, just last week, you know, I was so. Um, I'll just be honest. I was so depressed, thinking I cannot believe what is happening in this country. You know, and. I've been in the, the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem for the last month, and I was thinking about the grizzly bears that are now. The state of Wyoming, you know, is is opening permits so that they step outside Yellowstone National Park or Grand Teton National Park, and they can be shot. And I just thought, what do we do? You know, so we're trying to organize and, and buy up these permits and shoot them with a camera, not a gun. I mean, all of this is the political, right? And I thought, stop, too much noise, stop, you know, too much rage. And I went into the park just quietly. And as I was driving through um, what's known as Willow Flats at the base of the Tetons on the edge of, of the Snake River, I saw the willows move. And I pulled over, and there in the clearing emerges this immense being, a grizzly, a grizzly bear. And I just stopped, and I thought, this, first and foremost, above all politics, here is this beautiful being. Here is beauty on four legs. And I just wept at the beauty of it. And my heart calmed, my eyes opened, and suddenly I found a compassion that I had lost. And I just kept going, and I parked the car, I went out and sat by the river. It's called Cattleman's Bridge. And I promise you, all of a sudden there was this hatch of caddis flies that are about the size of your little finger. They are red, and there were millions of them. It was like constellations dancing on the surface of, of the Snake River. Grizzly bears eat caddis flies. And I just thought, here, now, this is beauty. This is the strategy for survival. And the earth, the world, Bears, on some level, I truly believe they will survive us. But even, wh- what will what will we do? Even as they are being led on the path of extinction, I just I have to believe in those moments of beauty that 
that take us to a place of transcendence. And in that place of transcendence, anything is possible. We have to hold on to that. Because if we don't have that, what, what action can we take? Our actions are hollow. And it goes back to what you were saying about love and, and reciprocity and truly listening to one another so that we can really see what is there um, beyond ourselves. Terry, can I can I ask you in in closing? I don't want to leave you yet, um, but I also promised you that I wouldn't keep you the whole day. But can I ask you to to read the last two pages of When Women Were Birds? Of course, Paul. I just thank you for touching something so tender in me in this conversation. I'm I'm so grateful. As am I. And I want you to know my hands are shaking, so something is happening. And here's the other thing I want you to know. I have never read these two pages out loud. Because they scare me. I hear my mother's voice. Not outwardly, but inwardly, while walking the spiral jetty on the edge of Great Salt Lake. The water has receded, and a spiral of stones curl inside themselves, creating a path toward the center. Louie and I walk this spiral in silence. We are with two friends, a man and woman, who also walk the spiral in silence. I have never seen Robert Smithson's sculpture until now. I have been waiting for a time when I would be in need of ceremony. The salt crystals are shimmering prisms of light as the heat emanating from the dry lake bed creates a distortion of time and space. We are floating in a dreamscape of desert and water and sky. My inland sea, my basin of tears, now evaporated, holds us and sustains me. It has been 24 years since Mother's death and never has she felt more present. In this layered landscape, I see the surrounding changes, but more important, I feel them. Once covered by the rising Great Salt Lake, the spiral jetty is now exposed. Like me, my own heart is uncovered. Great Salt Lake glistens on the horizon like a silver blade. I thought I was writing a book about voice. I thought I would proclaim as a woman that we must speak the truth of our lives at all costs. But what I realized was Louis walking behind me. And I should say to you, Louis is our adopted son from Rwanda. Is that I will never be able to say what is in my heart because words fail us, because it is in our nature to protect, because there are times when what is public and what is private must be discerned. There is comfort in keeping what is sacred inside us, not as a secret, but as a prayer. The world is already split open, and it is in our destiny to heal it, each in our own way, each in our own time, with the gifts that are ours. We stand in the center of the spiral and turn in the vast quiet that presses in on us. It is disorienting. The men leave. The women stay. And together we lie down on the salt desert facing each other, 
our ears on the earth listening. I hear my mother's voice. In the emptiness of this beloved landscape that has embraced me all my life, I hold my mother's journals as another paradox. Journals without words that create a narrative of the imagination. My mother's gift is the mystery. Each day, I begin with the empty page. Terry, thank you so, so, so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for this moment in time. And thank you, Paul, for bringing me home with your voice and inviting me to speak, um, to share, to be in this intimate space on the telephone. I love this, and I so appreciate um, what you've opened in me. I hope we meet someday, but until then I will I will be listening to this and I will be listening to you and we will be as it were in touch. Bless you. Thank you. Take special care. Bye bye. <laughs>